Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to a new episode of the Thought Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, the 26th of September 2021, and this is episode 5 of our season 7. First of all, let me apologize that you did not get a new episode last week. Sorry about that. We had some technical problems when I wanted to record the interview with my planned guest Oriel de Fenestrate, but not you worry, even if he's not on today, we will do that interview later in the season. He is not you are not going to miss him. He is going to happen on this show. And apologies to those who have to wait. Well, while you wait, why don't you listen to today's episode? Nick Farrell is back. Nick Farrell joins the exclusive club, the yet exclusive club of those returners to the show. There are only very few who've done that. And it was really worth it, I believe. We are talking about this latest book. I must say, but especially about his latest book. And um, looking forward to that. Also, tonight is the great moment. Yes, tonight we have the first live and video experience on the Thought Hermes podcast uh, with something I call Trio. Trio, because it's always three people. It's myself. It is somebody who already was my guest on this show. And together we decide to invite a third person who has not yet been on this show. But of course, this is a Patreon only event. You're not a patron yet. Hmm. Too bad. So you're not going to hear Greg Kaminsky co-host the show with me and interview Chuck Dunning about meditation in the Masonic and other uh, orders. Well, too bad. Well, you might be able to listen to the show a bit later, but without video, without live and no possibility to call in. If you want to participate next time, because this is not a one-off thing, this is going to be a repeat thing, I think, once a month or so. Um, next time, my co-host will be Carl Abrahamson. So if you want to participate, become a patron. Become a patron and uh, go to the Patreon site, look for the Thought Hermes podcast, or go on my website, our website of the show, thoughthermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com, and you will find the button there, click on it, become a patron, and you will be part of next time's trio show. Once again, eventually I will release the interview, but without video, of course, and not the possibility to call in. Right. Um, so what else do I have to say? I hope to get your feedback on this show. Uh, once again, feedback you find also on that website that I mentioned, feedback possibilities. And you will find, to those of you who are new to the show, all the former shows that you have not yet heard. And I'm sure there are many among them. We are steadily approaching number 100. It's only a few weeks off. So... Um, 
really happy that after four and a half years, this show is not only still going, but thriving as it never has before. Thank you to you all. And those of you who are regulars, you know now what comes, it, some music. And I must say, I'm extremely excited this week about the music that we can listen to today, because I got the true musical gift for you. And better even, it will not only be for today, I think I can use it in another show in a few weeks once again, because I got quite a number of tracks. And those tracks are by Christer Linder. Now, Christer Linder is visibly a fan of the show. He, he gifted me that music. And, um, uh, this is a, I have to read about Christer Linder and what I found on the internet because, to be honest, the name didn't immediately ring a bell. But I'll tell you what's, what, uh, what it says on the internet about Christer. His music sets the tone in award-winning feature films. Global fashion giants such as H&M, Fendi, Agent Provocateur and Channel battled it out with his sound. But the man himself is not easily found. Now, 13 years after the solo debut, Songs from the Silent Years, sound alchemist Christel Linder resurfaces with a new album, self-produced in New York, mixed in Los Angeles and mastered in Stockholm. With gold records and radio hits from various projects dating back as far as the late 80s, plus a substantial body of work in the 90s in Stockholm, underground electronic area, Linder has been a prominent but equally mysterious figure on the Swedish music scene. So I'm really excited to have him, an elusive Swedish Congolese artist, as it says, to be our guest musician this week and as i said he will return in other weeks and uh, it is from his new album uh, across the never and the music is truly alchemical and uh, i really really very happy to be able to have this gift from him and to play it for you now okay the very first piece that we're gonna hear is called pure like fire Pure Like Fire from this new album Across the Never by Christel Linder. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Pure Like Fire from the new album Across the Never by Christer Linder. Please go to the website and check out this biography and links. It is really worth the discovery. I must say I was extremely surprised to learn about that guy and even more surprised that he contacted me to gift all of us this music. Thanks, Christer, if you're listening to this. So Nick Farrell is back after more than two years. Uh, it's amazing how time flies. And actually, we in the beginning speak about those last two years a little bit and also without wanting to make COVID on this show a topic of anything. But it is still interesting to know how people who are really active in orders, in groups and in magic and who are very seasoned and experienced like Nick Farrell see those last two years and how they have maybe changed the situation and what we learn from it and how we should go on and where that could all bring us. And so we speak mainly about two topics, I would say, two to three topics in this interview. One is the one I just mentioned. Another one is about um, not uh, Nick's latest book, but some books he has released and about Golden Dawn and its history and also about changes in magical groups, how they affect magic or vice versa and what is needed, what is not needed. Very interesting, very nice to talk to Nick about that. But of course, the main topic was his book that has been released just literally a few days ago. So short notice, we could do that interview that we are really extremely hot topic here. And um, I don't even have the book yet. I have ordered it, but it's still on its way. So I, I um, cannot read you what I usually do a few lines from the book. But it is about it is the book is called Star and Stone. And it is called uh, it is talking about astrological geomancy, which was once the mainstay of the Western mystery tradition as a form of divination, only matched by astrology at the time for centuries. Court magicians and uh, others have used geomancy to advise the crowned heads of Europe and all types of matters. And then somehow it got lost. Uh, and while astrology was also lost, but restored to prominence and modernized in the 20th century, Geomancy remained an esoteric curiosity, even with groups like the Golden Dawn and OTO that have kind of taken it on, but they rarely enthusiastically embraced geomancy. So um, now it's about time and I uh, can only, if you are interested, advise you not only to read that book that uh, you can now get online. And of course, the link will be in the show notes, but also to go maybe to another website, which is called the Digital Ambler. I'm sure many of you know that website. It's a great website, a lot, lot of occult um, information, but also the guy who is running that um, Sam Block, he's called uh, Digital Ambler. He has uh, written quite a few top uh, quite a few blog posts and also books about that geomancy divination so if you're interested you absolutely should go there right um so well without further ado i'd say let's go into that interview 
I met Nick again in Italy, in Rome he was this time. Sometimes you can hear Roman sounds from the background, some serenes or police cars. So it was really nice. No, it's not disturbing at all. It's just when you are wondering where that background sometimes comes from, the city of Rome. And now, well, yes, in about 30 minutes, as you're used to, I'll come back to you. We'll play another piece of music. But for the moment, let's go and meet Nick Farrell. Here comes the interview. I'm extremely pleased to have someone back here on the Thought Hermit podcast joining the small club of backcomers onto this podcast. Um, Nick Farrell, who is with us here uh, tonight uh, from Rome. He is in Rome at the moment once again. And hello, Nick. It's good to have you back. It's good to be back. Nick, it's been almost two years now that you have been on this show and we had a lovely talk last time. And those two years, uh, it was November 2019, if I'm right, uh, those two years have been in the real world, in the, uh, really full of big events. Uh, the world has changed quite a bit, I would say, uh, uh, since those last two years. And we are not going to talk about COVID itself, of course, and all the practical matters that uh, are touched by this. But I would like, before we go into the other topic that brought us together here today, um, which are two new books that you have recently issued, um, I would like to get a bit your thoughts on what does this mean for the magical world, the spiritual world we all are concerned about. Have you any opinion on that? What did this change in world behavior mean for us magicians? I think one of the biggest problems about the changes in the world so far have been the dualization and the polarization of different thought, mm. where um, one of the things we've noticed uh, starting well before the current situation with, with Trump and all these sorts of things is the polarization of how people are forming into tribes and that forming into tribes also applies to magic because um, magicians traditionally have been happy to sit on um, their own views and say well the others are shit but actual fact um, this is now starting to manifest in the real world and I think one of the problems we've got now is you getting people who are seeing this polarization in the real world and assuming that it must apply to magic um, to the point where somebody would who you'd normally have just disagreed with in the past mm. said yes we have different views or we have different training or something like that is now automatically seen as an enemy and must be hunted down and killed and right. I think I think that is part of the general polarization where somebody um, who has different views of you politically or uh, on on any particular issue will suddenly become their teaching or their ideas or their magical ideas will be nailed to those views and the um, and the sort of um, how can I put it. Um, the stereotypes of those views. So if somebody happens to be slightly conservative, then you will assume that they're taking certain potions that and uh, won't be a vaxxer or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you would then apply that to their teaching. 
and that's the danger. So, because people are producing some really, really good teaching out mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. Um, but which is being ignored because their views are no longer acceptable publicly. Right. Well, that's an interesting point because, in a way, it's a very down-to-earth uh, uh, reaction to the COVID situation, and I fully agree with you. Um, do you think, without wanting to sound now whatever too 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 mystic mystical, but do you think something is also happening in a deeper level that changes behavior of? of our spiritual world altogether? No, I think the thing is, is something that needs to be resisted. I think mm. magicians usually find that um, they're supposed to see these events as they unfurl and suddenly work out, hang on, this isn't quite right, and work against it. And I think the whole move towards um, extremes is something right. that should be resisted in all forms because a magician is always supposed to take the middle way they're not supposed to go to any particular extreme and they're supposed to exactly. think about things and i think i think this is being lost particularly lately it's the hermetic way in a way that's that's being lost through that right yeah yeah i mean anything that is going towards an extreme is going to be causing problems and if somebody has a view that the hermetic idea is if somebody has a view that's different from yours you're supposed to at least look at it mm-hmm. and not just write it off because in those uh, views might be something that's very very valuable and can't be overlooked i mean If I look at some of the books I've written over the years, um, my views have changed dramatically on a lot of these issues, and some of them have ended up in books, um, which I would never have written if I'd held on to the original views that I had. Of course. I mean, my magical career started with um, Builders of the Atom, which Mm. is um, about as ridiculously new age as you could get. Mm. But... If I had hung on to those views and the idea when I started was that I would, um, then I would not have gone into the Golden Dawn. I would not have gone into all these other practical, magical things. And I wouldn't have learned all these different, um, had, had all these different magical experiences. Right. Now, I could say, as I said in BOCA, you know, the Golden Dawn's done. Um, there's no point learning anything from the Golden Dawn anymore because Paul Foster Case has rewritten it. <laughs> And um, at the time, I would have thought I was right. Now, as I'm older, I tend to think, no, there's people who are saying things that I once would have disagreed with strongly. And now I'm thinking, no, they've got to, might have a point here and it's worthwhile looking at. Because as you look, look, listen to those views, your universe changes, and it's that which you've got to um, deal with uh, better. Uh, kill that. Right. <laughs> Uh, Unique and I, we are about the same age, right? Um, we found out last time. So, do you think that attitude that you're telling us about here, and uh, yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, does it has it become easier to support for you with age, not just with experience, but with age itself, or is it is that an imagination I have? No, I think it's. A, I'm pretty stubborn. Um, so I don't think that it's something that comes easily to me. It's something I've had to think about. Mm. Um, some of the things that I find people getting upset about now don't 
bother me, which I think might be down to age. Mm. But um, as I've got older, I think I have got more generalist in my magical thinking. So, I mean, if I look at my my rituals now, they're very much a hodgepodge of things, which once upon a time I would have thought would, would have been stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I can uh, I know where it all came from. And I just know it works. So I'm, I'm happy with it. Um, whereas once upon a time, I think I would have been much more fixed. Uh, it might be. I'm, I, I, like I said, I am pretty stubborn about these things. So I don't <laughs> tend to let these things go that easily. But at the same time, I think it, it's something that I'm aware that I have to do. Right. Right. Interesting. One one more question about COVID and then we leave that go. But um, you are, of course, also practicing magic with others in a group. Uh, I don't know if you also have meetings in your in your order, but um, has that situation uh, influenced magical work a lot because those meetings were maybe not possible or were in very reduced form? And I mean, how do you wear masks and do a ritual? I can't imagine no. that. Well, ironically, the, I mean, the Golden Dawn used to wear masks. But, yeah, well, I'm a different type. <laughs> but uh, we have had problems that we haven't been able to meet. Um, mm. Now, I know some of the other Golden Dawn groups who, who used to have 40 members in a meeting mm. used uh, have, have not been able to meet at all because their laws only allow six or seven at the most and masked. I think we're at a point now where big groups are going to have to really think about how they're going to operate. And I think it's a great tragedy in some ways, Indeed. but I think, uh, this could be the, this could kill the, the big orders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think it could, the structure, I, I, the way I see structures, magical structures of groups now, I think they have to be smaller and they have to be much lower key to survive. And, I, I don't think COVID's going to be the first time this is going to kick in. I think there's going to be other ones that are going to come up mm. and groups have to be ready and rituals have to be written that allow structures that are a lot more flexible and smaller. Right. And this is something that might be not only necessary from the outside, but even from the inside. And in the end, if we do it right, the good development. I think, yeah, I think it is a good development. I think it would we're looking we need more distributed rituals uh distributed orders Mm. because i think the society used to be very centralized and very stalinist and you know you used to go into one big big metropolis to do your rituals and you go home um i think what we need are smaller more distributed systems where the teaching and the influence of that teaching is distributed over a wider area And that's something I I would like to work on once COVID disappears, Mm -hmm. because I think um, there is scope for much smaller, more flexible structures that are internet based. I mean, the rituals aren't internet, obviously, but the um, actual distribution of information and everything else is much more possible now than it was in, in 1888 when the Golden Dawn was formed. Of course, yeah. 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 And that's a fascinating new, new way of doing things in a way. But as you say, we have to find a way how far virtuality can lead us in ritual work, right? Yeah, exactly. I think this is a problem and it needs to be experimented with first to mm-hmm. see if it works. Yeah. Because I don't think um, 
most of the groups that have uh, that experiment and practice have not been looking at these particular things. Mm. They've been looking at, well, does this God form work? Does this ritual work and everything else? But very few of them have been interested in let's have an experimental structure that we can think to survive the next 200 years. Exactly. Exactly. Very interesting. Well, lots of things to talk about and, and uh, in the future to observe. And I, I'd be glad to talk about that again in, in a couple of years and see where we've gone from that. Mm. Um, the immediate reason, Nick, why we are meeting here today is a book you just about are releasing. You told me you got your own copy today, if I understood you well. It's officially out. It's been officially out before I got my copy, but it's officially out. Okay. And I, I ordered it uh, three days ago, but it's not yet here. But, and that book is called Star and Stone. And it is talking uh, from what I know, from what you've told me, what I've read about it, uh, about the connection between geomancy and astrology, right? Yep. Am I am I saying that right? Yep, that's correct. Okay, so um, well, Nick, tell us more about that. We have time to talk a little bit about that too. Uh, of course, most people here know a lot about astrology, I would guess, but geomancy already is a subject that might be less common among our listeners here, I would think. Um, maybe we should start there. Why geomancy uh, in the first place without astrology? Well, geomancy itself started out without astrology. It was a simple matter of, um, well, the name was came from the fact they used to poke holes in the ground and get a divination based on that. And it's an, mm. an Arabic, um, at least an Arabic technique. It could have been gone back earlier, but nobody's ever succeeded in proving it. But what happened was when um, it got moved from um, Arabic or Islamic countries in the probably the 8th or ninth century, it uh, was used to um, understand astrology. And it's, a, it's an interesting point because what somebody did, and which is a very golden dawn approach to things, they looked at the geomantic symbols, of which there are 16, and said, okay, there are 16 symbols, there are four lines, these are the elements. Mm -hmm. And so they applied, first they applied elemental theory to it, of the time, mm -hmm. earth, where air, fire, water, and that sort of thing. Then they took it another step further, and someone thought, well, what would happen if we use these divinations to make um, astrological charts, specifically horary um, charts? And somewhere along the lines, probably around the 13th, 14th century, they hatched out the system, which was a combination of both the Arabic and the astrology. And it created a, what is a poor man's horary astrology. In other words, one that, that stupid people like me can actually understand. Because <laughs> horary astrology, I, I love horary astrology. Um, there was a teacher uh, called Sue Ward, who, is a, who was honestly a horary genius. I mean, she could do things with horary, which um, she could locate people and things like that. It was, it was a wonderful thing to watch. And I was completely, utterly envious. But unfortunately, when it came to actually doing horary, it was beyond me. I just couldn't do it. And, um, but with geomancy, 
I could. And it was, it's a simpler system. It doesn't require ephemerises. It's done on a random um, number generation of four figures. It's very difficult to fall. Like tarot readings, if you do a tarot reading, um, you can say, well, yes, it's death and it's the devil. It's probably not going to be that bad. Death is, mm. you know, change, that sort of thing. Um, geomancy is a bit more black and white. Okay. And it's a bit harder to escape if you get a dodgy reading. And if it says no, it says it means it. And it one of the things that's been fun about getting into it is that I've been able to do a lot of readings, find a lot of systems, and actually finding that the ones from the 16th century under um, a guy, a French guy called Christopher Catton, um, give pretty good, accurate readings. What geomancy needed desperately was to be modernized. And one of the problems with geomancy has been that it was uh, taking the traditional astrolog astrological lines for things like Saturn, Mars, which are great malefics. Mm -hmm. and, and in the medieval times, if you did a uh, reading and you saw these figures, you would, you would say that you know, it was doom. And um, modern astrologers have been a bit more friendly to people like Saturn. Yeah. And seeing Saturn as being a teacher or having an advantage and, um, of discipline and things like that, they see more positive things in them. And Mars, for example, um, which to geomancy was all about arguments, fights and war, has taken on a, a meaning, a more modern meaning of things for things like libido and sexual drive. Right. And these readings start to make more sense um, with that, with that particular idea in mind. And it was quite, it was really good fun. I mean, a lot of, there are a lot of people working with, uh, geomancy now, um, usually quite quietly, but there have been very few books written in since, since I think 17th, 18th century. Mm -hmm. And this one is, uh, Star and Stone is the biggest since the right. 16th century. Right. Uh, in fact, it's bigger than most of them, except for um, Thea Magica by Haydn, which is thousands of pages long, but could probably be about 60,000. Um, it's uh, 60,000 words. It's, yeah. it's mostly Haydn talking about himself. But, okay. But this one, I wanted to get all the theories that I'd found, all the ideas that I'd found and put them under one cover so that people could start experimenting and, and playing with it themselves. So, but, but geomancy in the way that you explain it here is really the divination mean. We're not talking about earth currents themselves. and Not yet, and, no. Not yet. Why not yet? Why are you saying that? Well, what I wanted to do is I wanted to get a, a book out that was about um, geomancy as divination. Mm -hmm. Because there is there is a magical tradition behind geomancy, which and that's a translation of the word itself. It's foresight by Earth, so yeah. to speak. No, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was these geomantic symbols are Earth energies. They are the expressions of planetary force in Earth mm -hmm. at a sublunar level. So it means that there is a magical use for them, and lots of magical uses for them. And sure, we've been 
experimenting with these and they are really interesting and one day I want to sit down and, and write down the magical use of geomancy but at this point to try and establish that with geomancy being sort of a niche market with very few people knowing much about it mm. um, is not a good way. So get it. I thought if I got it established as a, a form of divination, people might start playing around with it and start thinking about it, and then we could start hitting them with the magical side of it. I mean, one of these symbols, um, say, for example, uh, Albus, if you draw it in particular ways, it's earthing down mercury energy, which you can put on talismans. You can um, put it um, as part of a spell. You can draw it on the floor with your feet when you're doing a ritual. All these things can earth down this mercury energy, which is um, really good if you want that energy at a practical material level. Right. But, I mean, I hadn't got into that with this book because uh, that is a bit involved. I put a little bit of it in Helios, the last book I wrote. Yes, I remember that. Yes, and the one we spoke about last time when we met. Mm. Mm. So those, the, it was, it's always been in the back of my mind, but at the moment I wanted to make sure that the divination stuff was being looked at properly because the Golden Dawn made a mess of it. And What sense? Well, it's not re some of it's not really its fault. Firstly, Geomancy used to be a very, very mechanical approach. Um, there was lots of, um, you had to squill, you had to draw the lines and, and generate the stuff. And then you had to do these complicated formula, which I've put in the book. Mm -hmm. But now you can go online and there's a website that you just put in your um, mother figures and it spits out a chart and that's all you need to worry about. Okay. And so it means it's possible for the first time to do readings on a scale which would have been impossible to the Golden Dawn. So when we were te teaching people geomancy in the Golden Dawn, um, they, it was hated. I mean, I don't know anybody who really liked geomancy there because they were so busy obsessing about, you know, whether or not they put the right number of dots in a particular place mm -hmm. that it, they lost sight of what they were trying to do. And it wasn't helped by the fact that um, the Golden Dawn uh, places stuff, uh, the signals on the chart in a funny way, um, which I've abandoned a long time ago. But the um, I think you put the first, uh, the mothers at the four cardinals, and then you do another one, and you do it while standing on a shoe and that sort of thing. And it's, it's unnecessarily complex, and it doesn't necessarily give a good reading. Right. Um, I read the article first to start with to get myself a bit into it before that talk uh, on Wikipedia and Geomancy. So I have a little idea about those dots and points. Um, can you maybe in a way that people who have not read an article like that and not yet seen Geomancy itself, just give them about those dots and figures a little idea how you actually practically do it when you want to do a reading? What do you actually do? Okay, what I actually do is um, a very simple means. I have some consecrated dice. I have four consecrated dice. And um, I roll, they're ordinary dice. They're made out of um, hazelwood, but that's about it. But it's just the ones one to six points, right? Yeah, because they're the, the right. easiest ones mm -hmm. to get. And then you roll, uh, you think of your question, 
and that in itself is an art form but um, getting the right question is, is part of one of the main issues and then you roll the dice and you arrange them in a line so the top one um, all the odd, odd and even numbers if there's an even number it's a line if there's an odd number there's a dot and that forms f- uh, four figures which are called the mothers yeah. And from those, you can generate a shield chart, um, which you can interpret the witnesses and the judge, which tells you if the question is yes or no or not. Right. And some people will stop there because that's all they need. And then there is a chart which um, follows the same rules of horary, um, which you have the house system and you place the... Um, 16 figure, uh, the 12 figures in a, in, a, in a circle and then you interpret them as you would planet, planets. The difference is that it's possible to have um, half a dozen planets all the same. All right. So it makes for an interesting reading. So you, if um, unlike ordinary astrology where you're limited to Mars being in one place, Mars could be in several places all over the chart, influencing those things in different places, and the one of the, that's one of the challenging parts of reading it. Okay. So, and that link to astrology it was established to one believes through the Arabic world, right? I, I think it came after that. I think it's a European thing, but I know that mm-hmm. um, some of the Arabic geomancers use it too, and I mm-hmm. think, but. It certainly was really popular in Europe. I mean, in the Renaissance, wars were fought based on this using geomancy's intelligence. I think Agrippa also mentioned it, right? Yeah, I mean, Agrippa was Agrippa was it was popular, but there's also um, Richard II in England has had a whole load of um, geomantic charts made on different subjects. Unfortunately, he's not really great because he went mad. But these. Um, And there's other courts in Europe that were doing the same thing because if there was if there was no uh, communications between these people, uh, they had to work out if messages were true, if rumors were true, mm. all these things which were ideally designed for by geomancy. So, right. for example, a good way of using geomancy in a modern sense is if you want to check if news is fake. So say, for example, you want to see if um, this particular cure is um, for coronavirus is good, um, you could do a, just do a quick reading to see if it's true or fa- fake news. I mean, and, so- and you would link it already with astrology there or you stay with the basic geomancy tools there? Uh, you'd use the geomancy tools and the basic astrology because the hmm. third house, I think, is rumors. Right. Um, so you would look at rumors, um, or if you want to know about the government, you look at the 10th house. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at relationships, which most people, most readings are about, is the 7th house. Mm-hmm. What I did with this book, though, that was different was I was trying to knuckle down a logical system of magical divination, where you worked out if a ritual was going to work before you did it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise you can end up wasting a lot of time 
if you don't know why a ritual isn't working or isn't is or might not work so it was possible to test to see if a ritual would be successful or not um okay and you could also do it afterwards as well i mean there was this standard that that case you'd use a first house ninth house to see how the ritual worked for you then you'd look at the ritual which is the ninth house and you'd look at the relationships between the ritual and all the other houses mm -hmm. to see if it worked mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that sounds fascinating um in your experience is it hard to learn is it is it something that uh, a beginner magician would uh, be a task to undertake or does it need some more experience at least to start with i think anyone starts it it was originally yeah. it was originally designed for as populist um horary and at, at its base level which i've got to in this book you can just look at charts to interpret things as you would a tarot deck it's quite simple but as it gets more and more advanced and it gets more intuitive and things like that you start to understand different things and you get better at it like all things that, yeah. that way right yeah yeah tarot's same same boat i mean i i started out in tarot and i find it difficult to go back to tarot now because it's too simplistic okay <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> that's an interesting view yeah i believe i'm not sure if i'm right but you might know that i believe that in either it was zanoni or the white lady edward um, balvalitten was speaking in one of his books so that must have been the 1850s 1860s about geomancy is that possible or am i dreaming no, it's possible. i mean the thing is yeah. is that if you look at geomancy it is hugely important at a popular those little pamphlets you used to get instead mm -hmm. of doing your stars like they do now you know they'd have um geomancy pamphlets to plant and things like that. So um, there were meanings for farmers and almanacs would read the geomancy reading to see if they should plant at that time. So it was hugely popular. And it, oh, really? To that point? Okay. Yeah. A really popular thing. Okay. It was hugely popular. And what it, it died about the same time the astrology did. And astrology resurfaced again in the, in the early 20th century or towards the end of the um end of the, the 19th yeah. and it was it was rescued and it was psycho it was at, it later got psychology added into it but geomancy was not picked up and that's one i think is great pity well that that's an i an interesting point of view when you think about it yes but um, i'd never heard it that astrology at some point actually died can you can you expand a little bit on that Yeah, it basically it got to the point under the Age of Enlightenment where people and mm. started to think, well, you know, the planets don't go around in a, in a circle and all this sort of stuff. Mm. And um, it was rescued by a guy called Alan Leo, uh, whose books okay. are still read. And that's the same sort of a, the same sort of approach. It was it, it, he present, was able to present it in a modern way, which appealed to people around that time and it carried on but there was a time where astrology was regarded as pretty bunk mm. um the golden dawn all the magic groups all taught it but the golden dawn also taught geomancy as well 
but what happens is you find that all these things went into um, ceased to be so popular because you know right. the sun didn't go around the earth anymore. Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, Alaleo, when, which time do we have to place him? Which, which years? Uh, Alan Lee, I can't, I don't know off the top of my head. I think he's, I think he might even be late 19th century, but he might have been early, yeah. he's early, early 20th anyway. Right, right. Interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that, really, honestly. I mean, you always deal with those things, but you, you don't go deep enough. Thank you, Nick, for putting us the nose into that. I think it was really, really nice to have Nick Farrell back. Well, this was only the first part. We're going to hear much more of that after a little break now. Um, and uh, no, really good to talk to him. And we had a nice time together also in the interview. Right. So, um, well, I promised you more music and here it comes. And it is, of course, again from that album by Crystal Linder from that newly released album, which is called Across the Never. And, uh, well, the second piece that we play here now is called Alchemy. Very good on topic for an occult podcast, isn't it? Alchemy, another really, truly nice sound landscape by Crystal Linder, which we will hear now. And um, after that, after that, we go directly into the second part of the interview. Um, I have to say something about that, just if you are curious and you suddenly start turning your knobs on your hearing device, because about 11 minutes before the end or so, suddenly the sound changes a little bit. Um, uh, there was a little technical issue and the local recordings that my software normally do on Nick's side wouldn't work anymore. And so I had to go to the internet online backup that we do. So that's why suddenly the sound quality changes a little bit, but it's still very, very nice. But don't be surprised. That's nothing to do with your computer or your iPad or whatever you use. It is just a problem that we had with the internet when recording. Right, so once again, um, now Alchemy by Crystal Linder, and then we go and speak to Nick again. And as always, directly after the end of the interview, the third piece of music by Crystal Linder, Other Skies. So now listen to Alchemy and enjoy. If I love like fire burns 
I, when I first had a look on those geomancy pictures that I saw on the internet, still, still talking about where I saw that, um, I don't know. I had a kind of a thought. It reminds me a bit of I Ching. Yeah. Uh, just a look at it. Yeah. Um, is there any real link between those two systems or is that just an outer impression? No, there isn't. I mean, I, I don't think there could be. But there are some things that are so similar that you think it's possible. Um, mm -hmm. The figure Joy, for example, is very similar to the I Ching Watchtower. Um, and the meaning is the same. You get above a problem and you see beyond it. Um, and it's very similar, but I can't, I can't see how historically it's possible. Yeah, exactly. That's what I wondered. It's too different. It's, just... too, it's, it's too different from the, the systems are too different from each other, um, to be similar, but they have got similarities and it's, it's quite interesting. Do they use the same approach maybe of, or well, it's just in a kind of an archetypal way that human men, uh, the, the man wants to find something and finds the same approach to it? It's possible. If you've got um, an elemental approach to things, I think there's more lines in the um, mm. I Ching thing anyway. But um, there, I mean, I Ching was also heavily influenced by Confucianism. So... It's not, I don't, I, I'm really not sure. Yeah. And I think the thing is, is that the, when I did some research into the meanings of the different geomancy figures, I found myself looking at the I Ching for some of those, but because they, the ideas, um, the spontaneous ideas that came out of it came from the, could have come from the I Ching, but they don't. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the I Ching is also very specific about the movement of lines. Um, of you have old Yang, new Yang, and things like that. The lines in geomancy do move, but they're much more. They're not. They're not described. So you yeah. only have two variants, not four. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I just know that uh, Feng Shui was wrongly translated by some Christian missionaries in China as geomancy. But yeah. I think they were more talking about the geomancy that we understand to ley lines, earth mysteries, etc. Right? Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is definitely not that. Exactly. And, and, and I was going to say, once again, this geomancy is not at all the geomancy we're talking about here today. No. Right, right. Um, um, so talking about the Golden Dawn, um, in the in today's golden dawn well if we can talk about one tradition but in the general tradition of the golden dawn of the 21st century let's put it properly that way is does geomancy still play a part or does it again play a part will it again play a part it's supposed to um it's part of the mm. curriculum the student has to learn it and they usually avoid it like the plague but um in <laughs> why 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 because i because uh, they you, you learn it traditionally and it's mm. not very much fun if you have to draw your own charts right um however the golden dawn magically uh, ex in some of its initiations or one of its initiations exposes the um, candidate to a geomantic talisman as part mm -hmm. of the initiation um, to open them up uh, and open up this sphere of sensation. So it was a big part of geomancy, uh, was a big part of the Golden Dawn, but I think Dawn, it's yeah. played down a lot now, but it's still, they're still okay. supposed to learn it. 
Okay, so uh, you see, I mean, I'm not a member of the Golden Dawn, but I'm very interested. I have done a lot of stuff uh, with that. And honestly, I, I was not aware of of it being part of the of the curriculum. So no, you, it, sh it should be. You see? Yeah, exactly. Both, that. Regarde, both Regarde and Crowley and all all these different people wrote wrote about it so um and yeah, i think there's a few right, there's man. a few um there's a few papers floating around on it but isn't it if you look also look at the um watchtowers and the enochian chess boards you'll find um geomantic figures yeah you're right enochian chessboard. now you mentioned that um comes to my mind as well well very, very interesting, which brings us, Nick, uh, somehow to our next topic here today, because um, you are a very prolific writer. And uh, the problem is, it's all very interesting books. Uh, you all have to get them. <laughs> and um, you recently published, it's not yet arrived either, but it's you can order it. Um, it's called Mather's Last Secret, right? Yeah. And um, well... Mel, I'll let you talk first about that book and I'll ask Mathis, you questions afterwards. Yeah, Math is Last Secret and there was a, another book I wrote at the same time. These, this is a re-release. I got the copyright back and I republished it. Um, mm -hmm. But it's... You mean the other book, not the Mathis Last Secret? No, Mathis Last Secret isn't new. It's redone. Right, that, that's I've, the redone. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but um, there are two books I wrote, wrote at the same time. One was King of Over the Water, which was about Mathis and his Alpha Eta Omega Golden Dawn offshoot. Right. And there was this one, which was based on all the papers that... Beeridge's temple in London used, which was convinced mm -hmm. also Crowley's temple after he left the Golden Dawn. Um, briefly, anyway, and then he fell out with Mathis. But um, so what happened was there was a ton, most Alpha et Omega papers are very hard to find because it wasn't yeah. a very big order and um, there were, weren't many. Um, caches of documents around and there was one big one from 1922 called the Slater collection in the United States but generally most people had this image of Mathis as producing all this high-powered magic while the Golden Dawn and Stella Matutina under Falcon was just talking to mystical contacts um, but um, for a start, that wasn't true, but um, the AO papers started to appear in different groups by people claiming that they had the direct lineage to the AO. And they were producing papers, some of which coming from Masonic or other types of um, esoteric organizations elsewhere, mm -hmm. and they were saying that they were AO. And right. we had no way, of, nobody had any real way of proving it. Mm -hmm. So when um, uh, a woman called Melissa Sims stumbled across uh, a pile of documents in the Witch Museum in England uh, that were collected by uh, Doreen Valiente, but they actually came from a single source, a guy called, um, whose motto was Nissi. Uh, N-I-S-I, -I. 
and he was a chemist um, and he was a member of Beeridge's Temple and he had a complete set of the AO documents and so I got hold of them from her and I typed them out and it was agonizingly slow and it got across two books and um, the what I found was that a lot of the, a lot of the things that Mathis was doing at that time was just repeating the Golden Dawn, but he was repeating the Golden Dawn as the Golden Dawn did it, not as Regarde wrote it. So, for example, okay. the less, lesser ritual, of the hexagram, um, mm-hmm. has a solar symbol drawn in the middle of it. Now, nobody does that, but the Golden yeah. Dawn did it. Um, but nobody does that now. So it's a piece of information that people have been doing the Golden Dawn rituals slightly wrong for about 100 years. Yeah. And so this document, uh, this NISI document, has lots of things that are really useful. Firstly, it um, shows you the initiations. Now, the Norton Order is slightly different um, from the Golden Dawn Norton Order, which we do know what it looks like. The others um, are slightly different, not very d- much different, but they're complete and they're very different from what Israel Regardi published. Israel Regardi, it was not commonly known, published some very, very cut down versions, which people have been thinking are the actual Golden Dawn rituals for a long time. Did he, did he do that on purpose or was he wrongly informed or did he want to hide things anyway in the end? Or what I was don't his think, motivation I don't, for that? He, he only had ever attended seven rituals in his life. I think somebody gave him um, some Golden Dawn documents from London, which had been cut Mm -hmm. down, and he didn't realize it. Yeah, okay. So the result Mm -hmm. is that a lot of modern Golden Dawn groups are following cut-down rituals, missing diagrams, and things like that. Now, what is interesting is that the... In the AO documents, um, we have the original portal ritual. Because mm-hmm. Mathis was too lazy to rewrite the portal ritual, even though it was hugely unpopular. Um, mm-hmm. But well, this is quite telling because a lot of um, the a- people groups claiming to be AO were using the Regarde portal ritual. And this, the original Golden Dawn one, and this one um, in Mathis's order is very short. It's basically, okay. you know, a few movements, giving a few handshakes, and passing the passwords. There's nothing exciting in it at all. And mm-hmm. you can see why, having got after going through all the elemental grades to get that, you'd be very disappointed. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is because but this was before they'd done the five six the five six hadn't been written um so at that point you know the portal was it um now we've also got in the nissi documents the original five six um which was also unchanged um which is very very similar but what i've done with the book is i managed to get in different the different teachings which are really important that people have uh, lost a lot of um, Golden Dawn material, practical Golden Dawn material, which I don't think they ever realized. And it was fun producing it. 
I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, maybe I misunderstood, but uh, did you say that there's actually two books? One is a new release and one is a re-release? No, no. Um, King, no, of, King of the Water is a re-release. I've re-released that yeah. under a new publishing company of form called Lord Manticore. Um, mm -hmm. And then this... There's one called King Over the Water, which is still in print with another publisher, and that yeah. one was um, that one's still available on Amazon. That's about, right. that's and what about the Mathis Last Secret? What about that's what Mathis, that's, that is Mathis Last Secret was is through Lord Manticore and is pretty much the same as it was. I re I fixed a few of the layout quirks which I didn't right. like and stuff and changed the cover. Yeah. Okay. So but it that, that's the re-release, basically. Yeah, but yeah. it hasn't <laughs> been in print for a while, and it's currently no, yeah. it's currently retailing for about um, the original first edition was selling for nine hundred dollars. Yeah. So, so it was time to time to re-release it and put it out there again. I mean, I don't expect a big sale from that one because it's been out for a while, and those people who are interested in the uh, have probably got it. But I think it's now been out for about 10 years now so i think there might be people there who want to know that don't want to know that material but doesn't don't know that it's actually there mm -hmm. and so i thought by re-releasing it they might discover it sure i have two questions for you um more general questions but which are based on what you just said um when a Rituals like that uh, are published, like the AO rituals that you were just talking about, or others in that in that sense. Um, do you think it they are reused, reenacted, but reused, of course, magically uh, in that way by many people, or is it more a historical recovery that we need to make? What what is your experience of the usage of those books, of those ritual books when they are published? Um, as far as the um, things like, for example, the hexagram or the pentagram rituals and stuff like that, I think it's hugely important because you understand missing bits of symbolism, which I think gets lost. Um, yeah. The initiations, the, the whole idea about, if you're asking me, do I think if an initiation has been published, has it lost its power? Um, I don't... No, no, that's not exactly what I mean. Sorry. Uh, um, that was part of the second question <laughs> later on. But um, I mean, I mean, rather... Are those historical books for people who mainly who read them and say, oh, that's interesting. That is what it was. Or is it, oh, hey, let's take that and work it. Well, I think it must be those take that and work it, because I don't think mm. the, hist the history people, though those are particularly interested in people like Yates or Crowley or somebody like that, mm. um, they're not going to be able to do much with it because it's, it's solid, heavy duty ritual. And... Right. It's more for people who are using the system, and there are a lot of them who aren't Golden Dawn members who nevertheless use it. I mean, the Supreme Pentagram and all that sort of stuff is part of most uh, Western magical tradition, whether or not yeah. they admit it or yeah. not. Yeah, well, like myself, I, I'm part of those that you mentioned, yeah. yeah. Mm. So you you need that sort of information to work out where it's going and what, what use it actually has. And I think one of the problems is that you see people online writing long, long um, papers about correcting rituals, um, mm. like, for example, the so-called elemental 
lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, um, you see them correcting these things, not knowing that they don't need correcting. They just need um, reading in a particular way and understanding in a, in a correct way. Which is kind of a link to the first book. It's always the way that you personally read things that how they work. Mm -hmm. no? Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, well, and there we are now with the second question, because um, and that's my, more maybe of a discussion. Um, does ritual of that kind, uh, ceremonial magic rituals, does that develop over time? Does a magical ritual um, in the 21st century have to have to be different than the one in the 14th century because people have changed, experiences have changed, or is that something, I won't call it eternal, but at least perennial that stays with us unchanged and we need to find the baseline of how it was before? No, I think we can adapt things certainly from the 16th century. I think one of the problems is if you've ever sat through a, a, a true um, Masonic ritual, Sure. You'll 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 yeah. discover that a it has power, but b it is boring as hell, and mm -hmm. is impossible to understand. And if you have a ritual that's inaccessible to the person, a modern person, then they're not going to, and they don't understand what it's being said. Then it's not going to have the same psychological impact. At least the ritual will still work. But the ability for the candidate to cooperate with it is going to be limited. And the intention will not be there. Well, the intention was the intentions there, but the actual ability for the candidate to understand it isn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. if you uh, look at the Chaldean oracles, which the Golden Dawn used a lot, um, they're potentially wonderful poetry, very, very, uh, but the, the translation they use is very corrupt. And um, one of the things I did when I first looked at the Golden Dawn rituals to see if I could, um, for my own order, was to change the uh, translation into something more modern English, because it was next to near impossible to understand if you didn't. I mean, it's hard enough to understand at the best of times, but the um, understanding it in form of an English person Uh, and bear in mind, a lot of our members are learning, are doing ritual with English as a second language. Sure. So the prospect of too many thys and thous and hair and through hair and twos and stuff like that is is going to be is next near impossible. And I think that f focus helps. So I think one of these things about rituals is that they evolve. And mm -hmm. orders evolve, rituals evolve, and if they don't, then they die. Yeah, I, I would agree in that. So, okay, so you see it that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I'm absolutely with you. And one of the major challenges, and I would love to hear you on that, is, um, of course, that also um, those orders have been used in a more democratic way let's put it that way to use a word that is mostly uh, abused but in that sense i think it's correct the members of those orders today are from much a wider fields than they used to be in victorian england of course mm. 
And that also creates different social experiences and it creates also different, for example, um, living experiences, 21st century, you don't have, even if you're rich, necessarily those large rooms where you could meet 20 people and, and, and work. How does a magician at home in a two room uh, apartment work and have her, his or her own temple in 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 one room that's impossible well, I don't does think, that I don't change th don't th ritual work I, I don't think the golden dawn people had it either i mean if you look at victorian rooms in england they were never that big um some you'd, you'd be lucky you'd have a double drawing room so you'd have enough space but you'd have to take out all the furniture they're very very narrow rooms um right. so in the modern times, yes, it is difficult. I mean, I, um, I'm living with my wife in a tiny flat and we have an altar and we have a temple. Um, there is enough room for us to circumambulate around the altar and to do rituals around the altar, but that's about it. There's not much room otherwise. And I think we just got used to it. I think... The, but will sorry, if, uh, uh, may I ask: Are you moving the altar when you're done with the ritual, or does yeah, it stay wheels. there all the time? It's on wheels. Yeah, I okay, mean, so I think you, I think you change the room. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Th I think this idea of altars on wheels and things like that. I mean, that seems to be pretty standard. I don't think there's anything unusual about that. They used to yeah. put the the magic equipment would be put in boxes, and that's it, and it'll be locked away until the whole idea of a of a temple is very. Uh, a room set aside as a temple is very unusual. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, in writings you find them. Probably the practice is not is not uh, is not usual, right? No, no. I, yeah. I think I think I think you would find that most magicians would have set up their gear in their in their library or whatever or whatever room they had spare, and that was it. Um, they, mm -hmm. I mean, they they wouldn't really need much. They don't really need right. much room if you're doing a one person ritual. Yeah, exactly. Well, when you when you take it from the matters book that we just talked about and see what you work today also in group, not just uh, at home, um, in what way has the Golden Dawn ritual evolved, developed? In what sense, in, in which direction? What would be the major changes that you see? Uh, there aren't much changes. I mean, most of the changes to the Golden Dawn rituals happened... Um, uh, just before the First World War. Mm -hmm. um, now they, I mean, the portal re re was rewritten and uh, there was tinkering with the five, six and stuff. Like, and and Matt mm -hmm. has also did changes to the North North. Mm -hmm. um, but the rituals more or less are, this, are pretty much the same. Uh, until... Um, no, actually, I mean, until we started changing them in our order, I assume other order, uh, groups changed theirs too, mm -hmm. but not much. And what was the motivation to do that? Um, to, it wasn't to make it more coherent, although there was elements of that. It was to add in things that were more in line with our own spiritual direction, mm -hmm. like... Um, to emphasize like pagan gods or to emphasize a different type of teaching or approach like that. So, I mean, if you keep doing the Golden Dawn system over and over and over for years and years and years, it gets pretty dull. Yeah. And your own spiritual direction starts to take in and you start to get in your own contacts within the Golden Dawn and it takes it in another direction.
Yeah, yeah. Would that be positive or dangerous? Um, depends how good it is, how, <laughs> how, how experienced the people are. Um, yeah. I think that's the most important thing is that a lot of you get a lot of people who pick up Regarde and think, oh, I'll just rewrite that mm. um, without actually having gone through the system for a decade or so and aren't really aware of the inner mechanics of how it works. True. And there are a lot of people who aren't aware of the inner mechanics of the Golden Dawn. And that is true for also other types of ritual, like Masonic rituals that you just mentioned, uh, yeah. especially the higher degrees where, where a lot of those things that you find in the Golden Dawn are also present in different ways. And uh, the problem is exactly the same, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you see you see the differences between Northern and Southern Masonic jurisdiction in, in the US, for example, the huge differences. And you might ask yourself, where does one or the other lead, right? Yeah. And also, for example, in the case of masonry in the US, they had huge problems, social problems, trying to integrate um, different lodges with mm -hmm. the great Masonic leaders like Pike being mm -hmm. Confederate generals. Yes, for example, <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, it, it is true, but that's what I mean, and that, that's that's the point I was trying to make. And maybe you you can you can tell us a little more about that. Is um, in what way the social development history, um, the development of the world in which we live, influences ritual that has come down to us from ages, so to speak, uh, and where do we have to? adapted i don't like the word adapt in a way i'd rather say make an evolution with it or evolve it um or where is it some fixed star that we need to relate to no i don't i really don't think there can be um the rituals the ritual language is usually is usually the first thing to change mm. and that has to change i mean i remember um, the first group I belonged to, well, after BOTA, even though that had the same problems, mm. is that the, the language of that particular period it used words in different ways that we wouldn't now. True. Mm. And this is a big problem because mm -hmm. um, I remember in SOL, there was a big problem because Ernest Butler, who wrote the course, um, was a wonderful magician, referred to something as uh, being plastic. Okay. And now yeah. he meant flexible, yeah. which is what the word means, but yeah. it means plastic now. Sure. And I, as a joke once, I used it in, a, in a, an article and people scratching their heads. And it's the same, same thing with the Golden Dawn. There's lots and lots of words in it that are different, mm -hmm. uh, have different meanings and different connotations. And sometimes they don't work. I mean... Well, somebody once told me that the Golden Dawn um, was was more successful in America because they liked Protestant-style Masonic workings. Okay. And the reason that if you look at the, a lot of the American approach to the Golden Dawn, it's very fundamentalist and literal. And mm. I don't mean that in an unpleasant way because I've seen some stonkingly good rituals done in that environment, but the idea mm -hmm. that it has to be done exactly this way That's every way, yeah. time. Mm -hmm. And what I found is a bit like acting. Sometimes a ritual itself um, changes in tone every time, mm -hmm. depending on the candidate. 
Mm-hmm. And so sometimes all the officers are on fire and it's like it goes really quickly and there's a big emphasis of energy and everything yeah. else. Other times it's like going through a Saturnian uh, quagmire. And it's it's because each person, the ritual was still the same, but the actual energy behind it is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And that is true with time and that we don't even realize probably if it evolves within the same lodge over years when things are being, are going into one direction and um, you have to also watch they don't go into the wrong direction, right? Mm, exactly. And the one of the things you can't allow it is to get, allow it to get out of control and mm. you can't allow it to either go too far or stick too religiously to to the text i mean there was a classic case of a ritual i remember seeing once where um someone um there was a huge sort of like uh somebody had a huge mystical experience in the middle of it Mm -hmm. and it was like quite spectacular and obvious that this person had um had this great spiritual insight yeah and um she started um, channeling something and I can't, I honestly can't remember how it was, but it was, it was pretty impressive at the time anyway. And then this guy, after she finished, she sat down and this guy turned over the page from where he was in the original ritual and just carried on. Okay. <laughs> because that's what he thought, you know, the ritual had to go from beginning to mm-hmm. page to do, and that's it, not it. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Definitely an interesting point. Yeah, I, I'm I'm completely with you. Completely with you. How, how, I mean, not now trying to correct that guy, but but you think how would you have carried on? Would you have Im, implemented the experience she had, or what? What would have been if, the way? If, if the ritual was done, it was done. Yeah. Um, and at that point, I think you say, okay, we've got the result here. Uh, we've got the channeling, we've got the information, mm-hmm. which and bear in mind, we're not talking Golden Dawn ritual here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'd wind it down about that point, I think. Right. And, and close, close the circle somehow. Yeah. yeah. Right. All right. Right. Interesting. Thank you for that experience. That's, that's, uh, that's a very exciting one. Um, well, Nick, we're coming to the end of our talk again. Um, it always passes that quickly with you. Um, but before I let you go, uh, I'm sure you have one or two projects, also book projects in your drawer that maybe you would like to tell us about and what's coming up next. Uh, the next thing um, I'm focusing on trying to publish books through Lord Manticore and I'm working on a astrology book with a couple of others. Um, and that should be next. I'm also trying to publish Pat Zaletsky's next book. So this mm-hmm. involves me editing and writing. All right. Pat um, Zaletsky, who was a guest here a few weeks ago, actually. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, and there are a few other ideas I've got. I've got a few books that are half written that I want to finish on, on Pagan Magic, which have been sitting around waiting for the Geomancy book to finish. And mm-hmm. so I'll probably start working on those ones next. Um, and a few other ideas that I've got cooking, but I, I'm not got firm outlines for yet. But the, yeah. the two two volume pagan book um, might take me a while because it's going to mm. be quite big. Yeah, well, but we're expecting that with 
not impatient. You never should be impatient in magical worlds, but um, with eager, let's put it that way. Well, we have to close our circle here as well. And let's go back to the very beginning. Um, what do you think, Nick? When will it be possible to find a ritualistic way um, to work in that new world in those smaller groups, in those decentralized groups, as you just mentioned in the beginning. I find that a very fascinating and very true and good idea. Um, what do you think? What will be the next steps of development in that sense? And um, how could we all help to develop that in the right sense? I think it will be a matter of sitting down, writing the rituals and above all the teaching to go with it, to hold it together. But mm -hmm. when that happens, I think there will be people, um, I think it have to be done on a, a lot more quiet and word of mouth basis. But um, I think basically you need someone to sit down and do it all and write more than the outlines that I've got. Will uh, that still still be our generation, or will that oh be yeah, the next no, one? That sh that needs that needs to be done fairly soon, I think, or within mm. the next within the next decade, certainly. So, can we expect something from you from that corner as well? If I'm still alive, yeah. Well, let's all hope so. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much for that talk. It was really great to have you again here on the Thought Service podcast. Thank you for finding the time. Also, a rather short notice. Uh, I must say thank you for that. And uh, well, good luck with all your projects and uh, with life in general. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you later. See you later. Bye. Bye.
Other Skies from the album Across the Never by Crystal Linden, a great musical gift that we received today for this show. And thank you not only to Crystal Linder who offered this music, but also especially to Nick Farrell, who was willing to do this interview also at very short notice because I just saw the book was released and I really thought this was a highly interesting topic. Didn't want to wait. Also kind of did. We wanted to be the first one to do an interview with Nick on that. And uh, yes, we did it. So um, thanks to Nick. I think it was really worth it. Uh, great talk we could have. And thanks so much um, for that. And uh, I hope you all enjoyed and once again learned something in geomancy, I must say. It was in that context a completely new topic for me. Geomancy was more related to uh, ley lines and stuff like that. So I really learned a lot this time. Don't know why that never come across my desk so far. Okay, great. Um, well, this is the end of episode five in season seven of today's episode. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to become a patron if you want to listen to trios in the future. Right. And yeah, yeah, I think you really missed something if you don't. And well, you probably also want to know who is be going to be my guest next week. Not Ariel yet. Um, I promised it, it'll happen, uh, but we're not ready yet to do that. Um, and uh, so wait for a couple of weeks or so. But um, next week, another returner. And well, he's our record breaker, actually. Tobias Churchin returns for the fourth time on this show. Quite amazing. Nobody has made three so far, and he is already on this fourth show. And I have a feeling it's not going to be the last one. Well, this time we talk about that wonderful book that he wrote um, and that was released already a few months ago, which is called The Lost Pillars of Enoch. And, um, well, it is, it is something about the relation between science and religion and our knowledge and very, very interesting book, I must say. I, I when I read it a few months back, I really delved deeply into it. And we're going to have a talk about that. And um, it's always lovely to have Tobias back. Okay, well, that was it for today. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, have a good week, and we'll be back next Sunday. And until then, I can tell you only take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.